We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. If you could picture a town which really, it looked like a ghost town, so it was pictured sort of deserted, boarded up houses, empty schoolyards, vacant you know, shopping lots and parking lots, run-down stores, and it really felt like you were riding through a town where everyone had left. This is Leon Morton. We had been told about this place called Charlie's. And this is Charlie Turnbull. And so we searched around for a while. I remember we did some loops around the town and we were kind of looking for it. And then finally we found it. It was kind of on the edge of town and there was just a neon sign that said open. And so we walked on in. The bar that we had walked into was at complete odds with everything we had just seen outside in the town. It was like a little slice of paradise in the middle of the desert. In 2015, Leon and Charlie, they put together a group of friends for a bike ride across a section of America. They were obsessed with a book, a quintessentially American one. Maybe it was one you read in college or high school. And Charlie and Leon, they wanted to trace the path of the book's characters. Bringing book adventures to life is hardly a new thing. Fans flock to London for Harry Potter tours. People that love Jack Kerouac, they make the pilgrimage to Washington's North Cascades, to the lookout tower featured in Dharma Bums. Even California's John Muir Trail is a way of recreating the magic of Muir's well-chronicled Sierra adventures. Charlie and Leon's trip was maybe a little bit different, a little grittier, less inviting. Certainly not as magical or scenic as visiting England or the Cascades. But it's one, as Americans, we often forget about. One that millions of Americans completed as they looked for a better life. Maybe your grandparents made this pilgrimage, or at the very least, they knew someone who had. Get ready to start pedaling. Today, producer Elizabeth Nakano brings us the story of a small community that left a big impression on a couple of travelers. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Back in 2012, Charlie and Leon, who had been friends for only about a year, were drinking wine and throwing around ideas for a trip. Dreaming up intense physical adventures is a pastime in itself for the guys. They met while training to be instructors for Outward Bound Australia, and they began sharing their bucket list trips. I actually have a list on my computer of every adventure that Charlie and I have schemed up. 
they're pretty grand in there. <laughs> they're pretty ambitious. Go from India to Tibet, walk from Holland to Constantinople, which is Istanbul now, go to Antarctica and find Mawson's old shack, uh, sail from England to Iceland, follow the route from Cormac McCarthy's book, All the Pretty Horses. I mean, they're pretty varied and some quite laughable, really. <laughs> when I read them out loud, um, yeah, they're not, not all of them are possible, but it's a, it's a fun thing to do. So that night, over a bottle of red wine, the guys came up with a new idea for the list. And then the dispossessed were drawn west, from Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, from Nevada and Arkansas, families... That's Charlie reading from John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Okay, so here's the Cliff Notes version. The Grapes of Wrath takes place during the Great Depression, and it follows the Joad family. They're poor farmers who are forced from their home in Oklahoma in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl, a period of dust storms and drought across the American prairies. While the Joad family is fictional, they were based on the tens of thousands of real people who left their homes and set out to make new lives in California. And it's a perilous and daunting and uh, tragic adventure, but they're on the road and they're just trying to make things work. And for some reason, I was really drawn to that aspect of it. It's something that can teach us a lot about ourselves. And what really won me over, and I don't want to, this is a bit of a spoiler, was that it, it is a, a tragic book at times, but I really loved how Steinbeck finished that book with this this one little story, which I won't go into, but I think ultimately he sees hope in humanity, and I think that was really important to me. The Joad family travels to California along Route 66. It's a highway that stretches from Illinois to the Southern California coast. The family starts in Salisaw, Oklahoma, and that's where Charlie and Leon officially kicked off their own journey. It was 2015 when they started, and their trip plans had changed a bit in the three years since they dreamt it up. They had roped in three friends for the ride, and they decided to film themselves. And that was most of their trip planning. Let's just put the stuff we're taking over here. Gas canisters, first aid kit. No. My understanding is that we really did very little to prepare other than know what direction we were cycling in. We literally just looked at Google Maps. We didn't even look at a, a weather forecast for what um, the temperature was like in Texas and Oklahoma and Arizona in July. So we, we got there and I think we all hit the ground and then thought, wow, this is, this is pretty hot. And then we also found that we were cycling from east to west and that's the wrong direction to go at that time of year as well because of these massive headwinds. So um, I think one of our friends or mothers or someone very kindly emailed us that, you know, just as we were getting on the plane to come over. We budgeted 29 days for 1,600 miles. So I think that's pretty much the whole state of Oklahoma um, across the panhandle of Texas uh, into New Mexico, across Arizona, and then, uh, and this was the real kicker, up into the Mojave Desert in July and then down into Bakersfield. The guys started out hauling a few pairs of clothing each, their camera gear, and new bikes. New, new bikes. As in, none of the bikes had been assembled before they arrived in America. 
the guys also had a little bit of money. $420 for the five of them. That was the modern-day equivalent of the amount of money the Jodes had to live on. And then there were the musical instruments. Two guitars and a drum kit. The guys were hoping they could supplement their budget by busking. As they loaded up their bikes, everyone felt the expected mix of nerves and excitement, but Charlie and Leon were especially psyched. Leon and I are both have, well, I know I've been pretty obsessed with the United States for a long, long time. We both agreed that our ideal holiday is just getting in a car or on a bike and going to small towns. The idea of traveling around to little towns and going to diners and meeting rural folk can appear to be really romantic. For Charlie and Leon, this shared fascination slash obsession with small town America was one of the biggest draws of the adventure. They both had these visions of discovering a town's special dynamic, this sense of community. I think the pace of a bike where you're, you're still going quick enough to be able to cover a bit of ground and see the landscape change, but you're also traveling slow enough that you can really appreciate that change and you can get off your bike and speak to people. And um, there's something about if you're stuck in a, a car, it's this little metal bubble that you don't actually ever often get out and, and talk to people or actually experience what people are actually experiencing on the ground. Has either of you done much cycling? Yeah, I've done, I mean... One cycling trip, that was about 15 days, and we were totally underprepared. I mean, we wore jeans and casual shoes and just thought it would be a little stroll in the park. My experience of riding a bike really was just riding from home to school every morning and back, and that's about it. But, you know, I thought, wow, how hard can it be? Just get on the bike and start riding. So what do your days look like when you're trying to relive the grapes of wrath? We're waking up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, have a quick breakfast that was some sort of bircher muesli or something quick and easy. The bircher muesli sounds delicious and gourmet, but it could have also been called gruel, I think. When you think about planning a long duration adventure, you think about being really efficient and packing light and getting all these lightweight dehydrated meals so you can really save every kilogram in your pack. But because we were on such a tight budget, we were just shopping at these family dollar stores and Dollar General where we were just buying the cheapest nutritional stuff we could get, which a lot of the time was canned black beans or canned beans and some pasta, which of course, is really heavy to carry. We'd be riding by 5.30, 6 a.m. That was always our goal. So we'd get a lot of riding done under a bit of darkness as the sun's coming up, ride through to maybe 10 a.m., uh, 11 a.m. Then we'd generally stop and have a bit of a sleep or a bit of a rest over the lunchtime, which was the really hot part of the day. And then we'd get riding again in the afternoon and we'd ride right through till the sun came down, sometimes right through to the night. The guys were eager to meet people on their journey, so they'd aim to make it to their destination by 6 or 7 p.m. After arriving, they'd spend a few hours uploading that day's footage before heading out. And they had no problem finding people to hang out with them and talk about their lives or offer them free food or a place to crash for the night. 
The ease of all these positive interactions was kind of surprising. Not just because of how open and generous so many people were, but because the guys looked, well, unusual. If you're sitting on your porch looking out and you saw a group of cyclists riding by, you'd see one guy with very little equipment riding really fast ahead of the pack with a camera, and then he'd stop, he'd prop up the camera, get in a position to take some footage, and then you'd see very slowly behind him (laughs) trundling up, you'd see another two people on bikes without trailers, and then a good 100 metres behind them, you'd see another two people riding bikes with trailers going a lot slow, laden with musical instruments, drum kits, guitars, looking really dishevelled, dirty, tired, sweaty. It wasn't a pretty look. (laughs) They would have stopped at least once or twice to adjust something on the bike or to change a tyre or to make a peanut butter and banana wrap or something. You know, it's obviously riding through farmland. It's very windy, so you get like a lot of dirt on your face and it kind of looks like you're wearing eyeliner and your legs are just brown and you're not sure if it's a tan line or if it's just dirt and you kind of take your sock off and your feet are super pale uh, and then your leg is just this manky kind of brown color and it was so hot and the sun was so fierce that every day we would obviously put a lot of sunscreen on so it got to the point where you'd put sun cream on and you know, on your face and you'd look at your hands and there was just this kind of brown goo on your hands, just brown, dirty sunscreen. And we had maybe two showers the entire time. So it got pretty nasty. And on top of that, we were sleeping at the back of gas stations and behind dumpsters and... Under um, bridges. Under bridges, yeah. It was pretty grimy. You absolutely would smell us before you saw us. Yeah. It was offensive. It was... It was really offensive. The guys met good Samaritans all along the way. Like this one day in Oklahoma, when the owner of a pizza restaurant gave them a free meal and bandanas to protect their heads from the sun. And there was the day one of the guys fell off his bike and tore an arm muscle. A husband and wife gave the guys a place to stay that night. And all throughout the trip, people gave them money. There are so many moments where if someone hadn't given us that lift to the bike shop to get a new tyre or if someone hadn't offered us a place to camp for the night, we wouldn't have made it to the end. We just wouldn't have done it. I think we found that at ground level, there are so many wonderful communities and generous people who wanted to help their neighbours, who wanted to see their communities thrive and who were going to look out for a bunch of cyclists that rode through their town. But... There were sobering moments, too. Like, outside of Albuquerque, when the group ran into a man who said he hadn't eaten in three days. He said he had mental health issues, and he was preparing to commit suicide. The guys called for help and sat with him until it came. He went into the back of an ambulance, and um, I guess we all assume he went and got some help. You know, we all thought about that a lot, I think, because... Two days before, we had just been shown this incredible hospitality and in these communities, people were so bound together and community-focused and like they do anything for their own little community. And then that day we saw, I guess, someone kind of slipping through the cracks. Um, It was one of those points where it felt like there were these big contradictions in this country. After the break, 
Charlie and Leon confront another confusing situation. Support for the Diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. They've just re-released their award-winning film, Damnation. The documentary explores the shift in perspective from viewing big dams as engineering wonders towards the growing awareness that our future is closely tied to the health of our rivers. Directors Ben Knight and Travis Rummel deliver a thought-provoking film. It's awesome and funny. Kaylee's my favorite part of it. Watch Damnation for free on Patagonia's YouTube channel or at patagonia.com slash films. Enjoy. Additional support for the diaries comes from Kicking Horse Coffee. Their founders dreamed of waking up the world with 100% organic, 100% fair trade coffee. So they roasted small batches of beans in their garage and hand-delivered coffee from the back of a station wagon. 20 years later, the garage is a little bit bigger and there's a lot more beans, but Kicking Horse Coffee remains committed to the same good values. Dream, then do. Find it at Amazon or kickinghorsecoffee.com. And support comes from Kuat Racks, who have been with us for over a decade. Kuat began as an idea for a better way to transport bikes in 2008 and has evolved into a thriving company that creates high-end and awesomely engineered hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories that push the envelope of innovation. Kuat, because you love your bike. The guys kept pedaling. They sold the instruments to make better time. New Mexico to Arizona then crossed into California. By day 26, they were 120 miles shy of their final destination, Bakersfield. And that day was especially difficult, cycling through the Mojave Desert. By the time they reached their stopping place for the day, a place called Hinkley, they were sweaty and hungry and exhausted, but Hinkley doesn't have many people or businesses. So the guys had to ride around for a while until they found a bar they had been told would be open. It was an old building, an old wooden building, and you opened a very simple front door. First thing you see are these beautiful old wooden floors and a a well-used pool table right in the middle of the room. Uh, And then you turn to your left and you see... I guess a small bar, um, maybe about 10 people sitting around it, all of them in cowboy hats and boots. And on the wall you just see photos of all of these community members and at various different events, various different costumes. Um, Basically it, it, it kind of felt like it was the story of this town on the walls of this bar. And then we walked around the bar and there was just a, a table of food there, um, like a big buffet-style table. And it wasn't even a question. I feel like we walked in and they just said, help yourself. I remember how hungry I was that day, but walking into that bar and seeing cold beer being poured in jugs and just the smell of barbecue that had been cooking all day. And there was beans and rice and slow-cooked barbecue, and we just weren't allowed to buy our own beer. Beer after beer came from these very friendly locals. Hinkley was the kind of small-town community Charlie and Leon had envisioned when they first dreamt up their bike ride. They really welcomed us wholeheartedly, and you very quickly felt very connected to these people. It became very personal very quickly, I think. I don't think I've seen 
such a bond in a community before or after that. I remember speaking to the owner, Charlie, and asked him if he lived in town and it became very clear very quickly that he didn't live in town. He actually lived hundreds and hundreds of miles away, but he owned the bar and came back every week just to give the people of this small town somewhere to come every Sunday to share a meal, come together as a community. The name Hinkley might sound familiar because of Aaron Brockovich. Some of you might remember a movie about a law clerk named, you guessed it, Aaron Brockovich. It was based on her real-life investigation into the company Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E. PG&E had a gas pipeline in Hinkley, and it was dumping contaminated water into unlined ponds. The groundwater supply was affected. Many residents developed serious medical conditions. Although there's ongoing pushback from industry scientists about whether the compounds leaked into the water were responsible. Charlie and Leon didn't know all of this going into Hinkley. The story came out as they circled the bar talking to people. We learned that once upon a time, this town was a thriving little town with schools and shops and healthcare facilities, everything that a modern town nowadays would have to survive and operate well. I remember talking to one couple about what had happened there and at one point they pointed me to this certain area on the wall of the bar and it was full of photos of men and women and they told me that that wall was basically a memorial for their friends and prior residents of the town who had passed away because of the PG&E contamination. PG&E was hit with a class action lawsuit by Hinkley's residents. In 1996, the company ended up paying out a multi-million dollar settlement. In the Aaron Brockovich movie, the residents are triumphant at the end. They went up against a corporate giant and won. But in real life, things continued to be complicated for the people of Hinkley. Lots of them left the community. Property values dropped because of the stigma. Businesses closed. Those who stayed had to deal with another water crisis. In 2008, the contamination started spreading. PG&E was hit with a $3.6 million fine for that. To Charlie and Leon, Hinkley was a striking reminder of what hadn't changed in America since the era of the Joad family and the Dust Bowl. What had happened in the town and what was continuing to happen completely changed the makeup of this town and ultimately destroyed it. And I say destroy, I mean, there was still this beautiful hub of community, but they were all really aware that this town wasn't going to survive. It spoke so much to the Grapes of Wrath, and as happened in the Grapes of Wrath and during the Dust Bowl, it was the little families and little communities without much wealth who were kind of bulldozed. And it also speaks to a culture where a company can come in and destroy lives and then move on, pick up, and go operate elsewhere. And um, that kind of dynamic, I guess, is, is troubling and maybe still pretty prominent in the United States and abroad. But Hinkley also gave Charlie and Leon something to hold on to. That night, it shows the resilience of a group of people or a family or a community. It certainly gives me hope. And I, I think um, that was the overwhelming kind of reaction that we all had was how special a place that was and how inspiring it was to see them, to see that community band together. 
Something that really influenced me was how important having these communities are because without that community, you're not going to be able to fight for the things that matter or you can't do that as one person, one individual can't do that, but a community together can. Thank you to Charlie and Leon for sharing their story. The Bikes of Wrath is now showing in cinemas across the United States, Canada, and Australia. To request a screening at a venue near you, visit us.demand.film or contact Charlie Turnbull at charliedosflamingos.com. Music today from Bradley Carter, Jacob Bain, Ketsta, and Publish the Quest. Tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Nakano and edited by Cordelia Zars. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. So that I could write these songs. Maybe it's an attempt. It's just an attempt now. To try and write some wrong that's been going on. I heard you say, thought I heard you say that you tend to lose track of the days. Well...